0: Hey, what's up? Welcome back to the show. David Scales for Surf Splendor and uh, bringing you an episode today with the WSL's Dave Prodan. I think his titles the Senior Vice President of Global Brand Identity, but you know him. If you've listened to this show, you know him. He and I have a goal of connecting every quarter or so just to give you updates on what's happening with the WSL this is our second episode of this 2018 season so in today's episode we talk about the wsl stance on the 360 versus 540 controversy whether kelly will be given an injury wild card next year how the commentary team is selected for each event why all the dead air during commercials for the events all sorts of stuff he gives us his personal opinion on the american wave machine in waco texas he does a special round of barrel or Nah, taking Chaz's role in that game for this episode. All sorts of fun stuff. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation. You can find everything that we discussed throughout the episode on SurfsplendorPodcast.com, of course. And then I'll post it on at Surf Splendor on Instagram throughout the course of the next few days. I have an exciting announcement next week, a new show in the works, and we're gonna kind of give you a preview for that next week. All sorts of stuff happening around here. The uh, Corona Bali Pro is happening right putting now. Putting that rail right in. There. she's really dug in, put the hard work in. Also noticing you mentioned Running the women's event today. So hopefully you are fully involved in watching the Corona Bali Pro. Super exciting stuff. I'll recap that in a couple of days at the end of that. So new surf pod coming at you multiple times a week lately, it seems. Hopefully you also got to hear my um, debate with snowboarder Todd Richards over on The Grit last week. So check that out if you haven't. It got heated and it's still raging online. So I hope you're enjoying everything. Feel free to send me feedback. I always appreciate your commentary. It really does help kind of craft this show. It always has for the past five years. So much appreciated. And that's it. Without further ado, I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Dave Prodan of the WSL. I'll be back at the end of the episode to sign us off. Thanks. We'll understand you all, by and by. And you, all Right, Dave Prodan. Let's rush through this so that we can watch Bali when that starts. <laughs> <laughs> For sure.
1: I heard, I, from what I understand, the uh, men might be back on the day. So. Oh,
0: really? Yep. Okay, good. What's happening with the forecast? Is it better um, or I
1: mean, I think it's fine. I think that like, the same thing that happened back when we ran in 2013, we kind of went there and we're like, we're going to get waves every day. It's going to be an air show. Um, and then what happened back in 2013, we had too much swell. The wind wasn't right in the afternoons. We kind of ran, you know, a few hours every morning. Um, And yeah, and I think that's kind of what's happened again this year. Okay. But uh, yeah, hopefully we get sort of some fuller days.
0: Did you see Albie Layer's plea for the WSL to run in onshore conditions?
1: Uh, I saw the headline. I didn't read it. But uh, yeah, no, I get it. I don't think he's the only one. Like there's been plenty of pundits that have seen that and thought like, well, why aren't you running? We're seeing all these amazing free surfing clips come out. Um, and I'm not on the ground, but I do think that, you know, the air wind there is, is pretty selective. So if you're seeing one or two or even half a dozen highlights from an afternoon session, it doesn't mean that it was necessarily fair competing conditions for everyone and that that could have been over the span of six hours and, and maybe just the commissioners decided it wasn't worth it. But I don't think that they're, they're not against running in onshore conditions to see air. So I think it's more just are there enough opportunities for each surfer to perform, whether it's in tubes or airs? And, and from what I understand,
0: they haven't seen that yet. Hmm. Okay. Because I think, I would like to think that um, Albie is taking that into consideration before he makes his claim. And he, he very well might not be. And also, he's just not on the ground. There's just a lot of variables to account for when you're on the ground. But it does seem like even more at this venue than other venues that the afternoon sessions in the wind have been consistently putting out pretty impressive edits and then not only are they impressive but it's a it becomes problematic when the clips that they're putting out in the free surfs are actually more radical than anything that we see in the actual event itself you know which i can't say is the case necessarily in all stops but um
1: Well, totally. And I think that, again, I'm not on the ground either, so I can't speak that closely to it. But I think it boils down to that opportunity. If someone's out there for two hours and they're able to nail three or four waves, it doesn't necessarily mean that every surfer out there had the same opportunity or that if they were within a 30 minute window, that the surfer would be attempting those maneuvers either. So I guess at the end of the day, they don't want to see surfers kind of battling it out for fours and fives. They want to see everyone going for eights or nines whether that's in tubes and turns or whether that's in big air sections. And from what I understand, it's just that the frequency of those opportunities in the afternoon hasn't been there for
0: them to run yet. But Do you know what went into the decision for Baron Mamiya to be selected as a wild card for this event?
1: I, You know what? It was a pretty long thread, um, but I do think it was based on QS performance um, and regional performance and sort of the... Um, Pacific Island, Hawaii region um, and Barron's been doing really really well so I think that's why he got the call up. At the end of the day the wild card and replacement decisions are up to the commissioner's office so they use a variety of criteria to determine those. Kelly's withdrawal was pretty late um, I think uh, I think he was actually down at lowers on that last south swell sort of testing out the, the foot and his performance and obviously he's been in Fiji so I think in his mind he felt that he could maybe perform there, but at the end of the day, he decided he, he wasn't up to par for the CT competition yet.
0: Um, I'm curious if the commissioner's office, that criteria that they use adjusts regularly, because traditionally we've seen the wild cards come from either a sponsor you know, of the event, or certainly like you said, the QS rankings and who's performing there. Baron certainly there's not a sponsor affiliation unless maybe sponsored by Corona and I was unfamiliar with it. Well, yeah, Um, which he isn't. But and I don't I don't know. Maybe he is doing well in the QS, but I'm actually thrilled to see him. And I thought this seemed like an adjustment in that criteria in that they were starting to look outside of the QS for potential athletes, because Baron's a guy who really just appeared on the world kind of stage in the last year, Mm -hmm. but he's blown up and he's an incredible surfer. And I was I thought I was going to give kudos to the WSL, like, good job for keeping a pulse on what's happening today and then incorporating it and giving giving him a chance, you know?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think if I remember right, like, he finished runner-up to Mikey right at Newcastle, and I think he's oh, doing did he? pretty well on the QS. So okay. I do know that the commissioner's office, when the opportunity is there, the criteria is basically their discretion. They go uh, you know, beyond that to kind of create uh, a, a curriculum in terms of how they make that decision. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've seen in the past, I mean, Dane Reynolds has been given wild cards because he is a performer and because they believe that he would add value to the event. Um, But I think they try to keep it balanced, too.
0: Yeah. I think he's a great addition. I was sad to see him go down in round two. But, again, on the world stage of that, the CT, you just can't show up and blow up. You need a couple of reps under your belt to really do it, you know, no matter how talented you are. Totally. And I think that, like, that's something that I've
1: consistently seen between people that are doing really, really well on the QS that you think are going to do really, really well on the CT is that the speed and the pace and the consistency of performing at that high level is such a departure that it's really noticeable. I mean, the one person that I think sort of, um, you know, been a departure from that this season for me has been Griffin, you know, and we talked about that last time. Yeah. man, he has really shown up and delivered, but Often the case is, you know, you get these sort of um, hype surfers or surfers that you think are going to do really well, and they're coming up against top seeds and coming up against really kind of alpha predators early on in events. And I think they have a, they need that, as you said, they need those reps to adjust to the speed.
0: Yeah, completely. Um, let's talk about the commentary team a little bit. We as viewers always, it, it, we really don't know what to expect. I guess is what it is will show up at an event like Rio and there's new people in the booth. Um, and then also, so we don't always know what to expect in terms of who's gonna be in the booth, but also what role they're gonna play. Rosie's in the water some of the time, Strider's in the water some of the time, Pete's in, you know, so um, what goes into those decisions, I guess, firstly? For sure,
1: yeah, so our our head of programming, Jed Pearson, he came from Fox several years ago and has been running the broadcast at the WSL um, and a number of other things for for several years. So he and his sort of leadership team in the programming um, division make those decisions Um, and i think that probably what at least i've observed um, recently is a lot of those individuals have become utility players in the sense that they're not just sideline reporters or they're not just analysts and they're not just water people but they can do different things Um, and i think depending on the availability of people for a particular event and the mix-up of the partnerships Um, when you're seeing them in the booth. I think they like to play around with that. And I think, you know, I I wouldn't want to presume, but I do think some of them want to flex out and say like, well, look, I I can do other things aside from just, you know, post-heat interviews or aside from sideline reporting or aside from analysts. I want to do different kinds of storytelling too.
0: Yeah. What do you think the ideal goal is? Is Is it ideal to have a team of six people? I'm not sure what the, how many are needed for a given event, six, seven or eight or so. Is it ideal to have that many or is it ideal to have, you know, double that amount and be able to cycle people in or out?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably preferential. I mean, I'm sure there's some fans out there that like having that consistency where they know who's going to be calling heats. They know who's going to be doing post-heat interviews throughout the year. That's not always a reality. Um, so I think that the way the WSL is approaching it this year is to have a wider pool from which they, they, they take the core team. And then they're able to sub in and out because it's a pretty grueling schedule if you do all the events and people have families and people have other responsibilities that they can't commit to a full year. Um, And I think the other thing too is that we're evolving from having a number of different language broadcasts on site at an event to having some of them operate remotely. Um, and looking at how you blend some of these things so you know having portuguese speaking commentators on that international broadcast is hugely advantageous so sometimes you'll see them cycle in whether it's carlos burley or someone else
0: does the wsl coach the commentary team i had um todd richards on the show with chas smith last week and he was talking about coaching that he gets for the olympics Mm -hmm. from nbc like they send a professional and it seemed like what he was saying was they were more giving him a list of what not to say, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, things to avoid for obvious reasons. But how much is the WSL responsible for that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that all the commentators go through training every year um, just in terms of how to deliver live commentary um, and what kind of best practices are, but they all work with producers at every event and, and they're collaborating on storytelling and, statistics and what that means for the event or what that means for a particular person or what that means in the larger sort of zeitgeist of professional surfing so um yeah i mean i'd say that wouldn't necessarily call it coaching but certainly like collaborative like development of how
0: we're framing the event and how we're framing the surfing to the fans my uh the most important topic on today's discussion is felipe's backside air in Rio was it a 360 or was it a 540 Dave Prodan <laughs> I mean pick I, a side.
1: I feel like I did pretty well at geometry in high school um but I, it, it is it is interesting I mean I I think that the the camps that are coming from snowboarding or skateboarding or surfing kind of have different opinions on it for me I feel like the nose to nose from I like to count it just in my head from when the board leaves the wave is the start of the rotation. So nose to nose for me is around 360 degrees from when the board leaves the face of the wave to or the, the lip of the wave to when it lands back on the water. Um, but I, I, I wouldn't presume to be an expert on that. What about So, you? What, Where are you so what
0: is Felipe's then in Rio? What did you call that? What viewing it, what do you think it is? I would
1: think it's a 360 okay. or in and around that degree rotation.
0: Yeah, let's give a grace period of 30 degrees, let's say. Okay. You know, But I, yeah, 360 is what I was claiming as well. Yeah. So I did, uh, I've done extensive research and discussions. That's why I met with Todd Richards, who's obviously a snowboard background. And ultimately what I've kind of, what we've realized is snowboarders or skateboarders hit the coping, you know, Per, the board is positioned perpendicular to the coping mm. when they launch right so surfers almost never do like you've never seen a surfer go straight up into the lip unless they were being towed at a wave sure yeah and in fact much more often their board is parallel to the lip and yeah. felipe's wasn't quite parallel but it was maybe 30 degrees close, north of yeah. parallel you Yeah. Know? and so and upon landing, like you stated, his, kind of, his board is facing the same direction. So it's a 360 degree spin, but snowboarders are applying, well, if you went into that same maneuver on a snowboard or a skateboard, we would have hit perpendicularly and we would have come down, directly down, also perpendicular. So there's an extra 90 degrees on the launch between where their board would be positioned and Felipe's. And again, extra 90 degrees on the landing facing down as opposed to where Felipe's is parallel with the lip and also parallel with the shoreline so that extra 90 on launch and 90 on landing makes up for the 180 degree difference totally okay so snowboarders looking at it through the filter of snowboarding think well if i would have hit the coping the board would have been positioned more so so that's called a 540 you know yeah giving that grace period but in this case it's 90 degrees rather than you know the 30 degrees So that's where the difference is coming from. It's a psychologically interesting analysis. Like it's an interesting analysis psychologically just to see, oh, they're looking at it through the filter of snowboarding and it's not about the number of degrees rotated, you know, and it's also interesting that uh, psychologically that all the viewers can just not analyze critically the actual degrees rotated and just take it as what it's called to be, you know, the whole thing is fascinating.
1: Yeah, and I think you get, like, an element of proliferation, too, in surfing. I think, you know, when you when you go back and you think of the first sort of 180-degree airs in the end section and then the 180-degree spin-out evolved from that, and I think people started calling those 360s as, sure. in terms of how seamless they were, and that's hugely different to what you're seeing someone like Felipe or even Albie Laird do, um, which is another one, right, because he lands it so high and so clean, but... You know, again, tip to tip for me from where he left the wave to where he landed, 360 slides into that um, 180 very quickly to ride out of it. Right. But I mean, they're just, it's so different to, I think, probably how surfing started describing airs that we've evolved that to mean something different, too.
0: And there's, um, he's rotating on a different axis at the same time as well, for you know? Sure. So it's not just a helicopter spin. You're, there's a lot of other variables to account for. It was so
1: radical. Like, right. Yeah.
0: So, um, I think Chris Cote is a true professional for the record. And, um, I think he does a great job at not only infusing professionalism, but the right amount of personality into his analysis. Um, and is a very strong reason for calling that a 540 based on his skate and snow background. But it's clearly a topic that has polarized the audience, you know. So I'm just curious kind of back to that WSL coaching the commentators situation. What's the WSL stance on this? Do they take a hard line and mandate what it is and that commentators call it? Obviously they didn't in this case, but just kind of moving forward, seeing that the WSL is an authority will they mandate things like that? Yeah, I think it's
1: it's something we should do and create like a standard. I think that it's cool that for the time being because there is that debate in the public, there's that debate in the commentator booth that they're actually calling that out in terms of like, yeah, like some people think it's this, some people think it's that. Um, But yeah, I think moving forward just in terms of standardization, and I'd say this for the WSL and sort of the surfing world at large, it'd be awesome to get kind of a baseline in terms of, just to compare apples and apples I think is important
0: I think so too I don't think any two airs are the same first of all so like there is of there is potential to have some amount of wiggle room in how you call things and even something like a cutback probably goes by 10 different names like he did a wrap he did a roundhouse he did a carve you know totally. and those are all kind of different things anyways but um I think that there would be some sort of benefit to standardizing at least, you know, degrees of rotation or something like that.
1: Totally. And I think that like, you know, like so much that happens at the WSL, it's either in collaboration with the surfers or led by the surfers. often. so having people like Albie or Josh Kerr or um, Felipe, weigh in on this I mean they're the ones that are kind of pushing the boundaries in this and they're sort of the standard bearers so I think listening to them on on their beliefs in that and then narrowing that up to uh, a skate influence or a snowboard influence and having something standardized is really important
0: or even having the conversation on air you know Mm -hmm. like Chris Cote I think Pete Mel was in the booth with him Mm -hmm. if Pete Mel even just says like Oh, that's interesting. That looked like a 360 to me. Sure. Why is it a 540? And then Cote goes and explains that snowboard scape kind of influence totally. and background would be very um, worthwhile. And I think everybody would enjoy it. Novice or, oh, totally. you know,
1: I expert. It. Yeah,
0: totally. All right. Well, uh, board porn on Instagram wants to know, please ask why they run so much dead air during contests. From a mega fan perspective, it irks me that they run, quote, commercials with nothing but a countdown clock from a business perspective, it kills me to see dead air and lost revenue." Uh, and then I'll also add to Boardborn's comment, why such redundancy with the commercials? The same Jeep commercial over and over.
1: Sure, yeah, well, I think you know it's, it's a conversation in terms of, you know, the WSL is business, so it is trying to fund the sport of surfing. And the ads are geo-targeted, so when the ads are selling out in certain regions, um, you're seeing an ad, and when you're not seeing an ad, they're not sold out in those regions. Um, Additionally, if you're seeing the same ad over and over again, that means that that particular uh, buyer uh, purchased a lot of ads in that region as opposed to
0: other regions that may have sort of a more
1: diverse approach.
0: It makes sense. But let's get more, let's get less redundancy. That that buyer who bought a lot of ads, have them send 10 commercials instead of one. Oh, yeah. Get their production staff busy on that.
1: Yeah, I get it. I, I do think that, you know, and I, it's, it's not like a, it's not really like a new criticism either. But no. in terms of like the price to pay for the live broadcast, I think it's a pretty
0: low cost to bear. Um, yes, it is. That's a fair argument. But somebody also mentioned, why not just donate like, have a back burner of donated space for surf or some charitable organizations where rather than just playing the dead air or the, the countdown clock gift that out, you know, yeah.
1: no, I'd say a fair point too. I, I'd actually say sometimes while will have it on my house. I don't mind the countdown clock because when the ads are playing, I don't know how much time I have to run out of the room. And with the countdown clock, I'm like, cool,
0: I got 40 seconds. So, I got a brand new suggestion for you. Even with the ads, countdown clock yeah, yeah, in the corner. Sure. You yeah. just add it to your workload. We we'll get the buddy. Tech, tech team to work on it. Um, Todd Richards, in that conversation I had with him last week, leaked an idea, a rumor about a potential air show coming to the WSL. Care to comment on that?
1: I have nothing to report at this stage, but I do think that in the past, air shows have been pretty exciting. Um, I mean, the last time they were really sort of prevalent was, Jesus, I don't know, like eight late 90s, early oddies, maybe, with the surfing air show series. Um, I think a lot's happened in competition since, in terms of guys pushing the boundaries of what progressive surfing is, both in the QS and the championship tour. Whereas late 90s, early oddies, I think you probably saw a more conservative approach to surfing. From the world's best surfers and now you're just seeing that everyone has to surf at that very very high level all the time which means innovation and progression is part of what you're seeing um that said you know different products and different events with different conditions can result in different pro- performances so i think it's a really interesting idea
0: i agree there's like some absolutely some of the best surfing in the world's happening on the world tour and some of the best errors mm-hmm. certainly with felipe's last year at J bay and stuff are being done on the world tour but it would open it up for specific targeting specific venues and um conditions like people are criticizing about bali like hey why don't you run in Mm -hmm. onshore conditions well we'll just aim for onshore conditions and map the tour around those conditions you know
1: totally and potentially even different kinds of surfers you know i don't think not every surfer is cut out for the pro junior qs championship tour but that doesn't mean that they're not contributing to the conversation. They're not advancing surfing in their own way. So, I think creating space for them to perform is important, whether they're big wave surfers or longboarders or aerial specialists.
0: Totally. Is Kelly Slater unofficially retired?
1: That's a good question. You'd have to ask him. I <laughs> I think that uh, it's 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 a fascinating study with Kelly because. He has been the world's best surfer going on three decades now. And I don't, I like to consider myself as a pretty good abstract thinker. I have no idea what that feels like inside of his head. Yeah. Um, and for someone that's been so physically gifted throughout his life, what that means in terms of what he thinks he can do performance wise and what he has designs on, um, you know, by all accounts, I know he's still eyeing a potential spot in the 2020 Olympics. He said as much. I know that he still has designs on returning to the championship tour. So I don't think so. I think that if you look throughout the course of his career, this does seem like the most significant injury he's had throughout um, in terms of the foot injury Um, and certainly the one that's put him out of commission for the longest. So I don't know, I I guess after, let's see, he's mid forties now. So I guess after 30 ish years, like it must be, it must be sort of um, earth-shattering in a lot of ways to be out of commission for as long and to kind of build that confidence back up, especially when the level that you are accustomed to is being the best in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't. I, he hasn't communicated anything about being unofficially or officially retired. I'd, I'd expect to see him back before the season's over.
0: Is there a d- concern from the WSL that his actions, specifically surfing the massive swell at Cloudbreak, surfing lowers, um, surfing in the Founders' Cup. Is there concern from the WSL that those actions undermine the weight and impact and optics of the WSL's efforts?
1: Yeah, I mean, there hasn't been any conversation about it. And I think that Kelly responded the other day in the way that at least he and I have talked about it, which is that, yeah, there, there is a difference in terms of level at a championship tour event as opposed to surfing even really big critical waves, or surfing in the Founders' Cup, or surfing really, really well in free surfs, um, there is a delta between that and between feeling like you're confident enough to perform with the world's best on the championship tour. And I think it speaks a little bit to, A, the level at that, at that, um, at that part of the, the tour, and B, just the, the idea that there is a separation between you know, the QS and the CT and between what people are seeing in between what the actual performance is in the water. Um, And I think he articulated that pretty well.
0: I thought he did too. And then I thought about Tyler Wright coming back prematurely with her knee injury. And I think it was clinching the world title with that injury. I thought about Julian Wilson, a mere four months ago, five months ago, coming back prematurely with his shoulder injury and winning snapper. And so I look at, if Kelly's going to rally for a wild card, next year an injury replacement or an injury wildcard certainly his status warrants it but are there not other guys who uh might be more deserving let's say even though their status isn't as warranted
1: sure and i mean i guess it's like every every person's different and every person's confidence level pertaining to their injury is going to be different and um I don't think we can kind of paint them all with the same brush, but, yeah, with regards to the injury wildcard or the wildcard um, that often goes to injury candidates at the end of the year, you know, though all those cases are reviewed by an independent medical board with the recommendations then going to the commissioner's office and then those wildcards being allocated accordingly. So, yeah, I think there is an element of objectivity that goes into that, um, but certainly, you know, Kelly's career and his um, con- contributions to the sport would make an impact as well.
0: Nobody's going to deny him the wild card.
1: Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, never say never, but <laughs> but at the same time, no, I mean, that, that plays into it. And yeah. It also plays into where you are at in your career. If you are shooting for more event wins, if you're shooting for more world titles, that factors in um, to, to where the commissioners are looking for those.
0: Yeah. Well, moving on, uh, what was learned from the Founders' Cup that might be applied to the CT event in September?
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot. Like, it was a totally new experience for the WSL on a lot of fronts. Um, the programmability of being able to know when and when and how long waves are going to run for um, hugely advantageous to our broadcast uh, media partners and to the viewership on that on that platform. Um, experientially around the venue, um, ensuring that that things. Uh, I mean, just things like food and beverage and and other activities for people to do, in addition to watching the surfing was important. Excuse me. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think that we were really happy with how it came off, but I would be lying if we didn't all turn up on day one and have, like, a notepad of, like, oh, these are things that we're going to do better for um, the CT.
0: What are some of those things? (coughs)
1: Excuse me. I think kind of around what I just said. Like, I think the experience part of it... um, and ensuring that that everyone's experience, whether they're a VIP or a general admission person, is having a really good time.
0: The feedback I heard, so I was at the boardroom show obviously that same weekend in San Diego, so I was not there. Uh, the feedback I heard from people who were there was that it was phenomenal. Like everybody on site said it was the raddest thing ever. Um, but that's not the feedback I heard from people watched it online. The main concern from the online viewing was that it was the predictability of the wave made the viewing less dramatic than an ocean experience. So is there any changes that would be made, um, you said from the experience of it, but I'm talking about from the online experience of it, you know?
1: Totally. And I think that we kind of went into that knowing that that was going to be the case. Um, and that what makes surfing in the ocean so special is... Not going to happen there. But when that happens, I think that the performances of the surfers on the waves and then the stories about the surfers and highlighting the stakes become much more important to people watching at home. Um, And I think that advancements in the broadcast space and the storytelling space are going to have to happen as we kind of move forward with that.
0: When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. What was the surfers feedback on the event and the, the alternative contest format?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think to a person, they're all really excited about, it was a different experience for them. I think, you know, for me, it, surfing's a fairly selfish pursuit Um, So it felt like for a lot of them, the first time that they were emotionally invested in how other people performed on their team. And I think seeing the co-ed team element was really, really cool Um, and seeing how excited they got in more of a community-based experience. Um, As far as the championship tour events go, you know, I think every venue has their own challenges, like for surfers. I think that each wave has a bunch of challenges, but you probably boil it down to a single challenge, right? Like, so at Chopu, the takeoff is probably the challenge, right? Positioning yourself as deep and as critically as possible um, and making that drop. At Jeffrey's Bay, it's probably the pacing, right? Because it's such a fast wave, and you have to know when to do maneuvers. You have to know when to step on the accelerator. In big beach breaks like Hasegore, it's probably... Um, ocean knowledge and lineup positioning, ensuring that you're in the right spot for the right wave. And I think at Surf Ranch um, or WSL Surf Ranch, it's just the pressure of not having any excuses. Like the wave is very performance oriented in the sense that you know what it's going to do, but you only get those finite opportunities and you know how many opportunities you're going to get and everyone's watching. And I think some people responded really, really well to the pressure and some people struggled with it. I think for me, Paige Harab was one of the standouts just because she really stepped up when a lot of people were watching her perform. Um, So yeah, I think it's cool to have, in terms of determining the world's best surfers, having a balance of challenges across the many venues, you know, lefts and rights and reefs, et cetera, you wouldn't have five chopus. um, And, you know, I just think it's kind of an additive um, challenge for the surfers that they haven't
0: had in the past. How many different waves can you program into that machine?
1: Uh, I mean, I think they've only really played with half a dozen so far, but I do think that it's important to remember that the cell surveillance facility in Lemoore is still a testing facility, and they haven't really played with everything yet. They probably only, I'm sure they'd argue they only scratched the surface. So, yeah, they're continuing to test what that looks like, and I think they're also testing what different setups would be at different
0: locations as well. So with that test facility, though the train obviously pulls a plow under the water, the things that they could alter would be the speed of the train, the angle of the plow, uh, depth, depth of the pool by yep. adding or reducing water. Yep. What about? Is there the potential to change the contours on the bottom?
1: Oh, totally. Yeah, okay. I mean they could they could they could change that. Um, I think what you probably see is that. They'll test that up in Lemoore, but that's a pretty expensive renovation or retrofit. Right. So the testing of that would probably happen at like a model scale and then be applied to other facilities.
0: I mean, I know pouring the concrete would be expensive. I'm just wondering if there's temporary solutions that could be engineered by putting, you know, some plastic mold under the tarp or something like that. securing yeah, Potentially, it yeah. It'd be interesting. Yeah to create a, um, I mean, we were talking about rock climbing, yeah. <laughs> indoor rock climbing, you know, like all those handholds are removable and you can adjust them accordingly, you know? So that would be kind of interesting to have a plug and play. What do they call so them in yeah. rock
1: climbing problems or that people have to figure out? Is I'm not sure. I'm Yeah, you'll have to let me know. I, I the think different they, routes? Yeah, I think they refer to them as problems or equations or something like that. And I'm like, that's, that's perfect. Cause you kind of have to
0: you know, yeah. troubleshoot. Yeah. It would just allow, uh, again, for a lot more versatility. I'm not, obviously, a lot of engineering considerations here. (laughs) I'm just coming up with, I'm the ideas guy, Dave. Um, All right, uh, SurfStats wants to know, June was the original estimated date for the transition from shared hosting to Facebook having exclusive hosting. Is that still the plan?
1: Well, I mean, what a red-letter day in history to have the podcast because we've just announced... Maybe we might be an hour ago, maybe minutes ago. By the time we're recording, that uh, the J Bay Open will be the first event that we fully migrate to the Facebook platform.
0: Awesome! And is that July?
1: Yeah, early July.
0: Okay. Wow! Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. So uh, what does that look like for the viewing experience?
1: For sure, so the viewing experience, if you're logged into Facebook and you go to WorldSurfleague.com, you'll be automatically redirected to the stream. Uh, Pretty seamless. If you're not logged on, there'll be sort of a prompt to punch your email in, and once you're on, it'll be redirected to the stream. Um, And yeah, so I mean, that's the experience is also gonna include interactivity with the commentator team, um, and a few other sort of bells and whistles in and around the standard high def uh, I think 1080 uh, broadcasts that people are accustomed to on the World Surf League
0: When you say you will be redirected does that redirect you to facebook.com slash whatever?
1: Um, it's a good question, I think that there's going to be two options to A, to play in the, 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 the player will play on worldsurfly.com or B, it'll play via the, the Facebook page that loads
0: what will happen with the WSL app on my phone?
1: You should be directed to the Facebook stream.
0: Okay. Yeah. So what if a viewer does not have a Facebook account?
1: Then they will have to
0: register for a Facebook account. You will not be able to view the J-Bay Open without a Facebook account then? That's correct. All right. Big changes. Um, I'm curious about viewership. And have the numbers kind of grown as quickly as they've been forecasted? Have you hit projections? I had a friend saying he was watching all of the Founders Cup, and he never really saw the number get above 4,000 from what he was viewing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that got streamed um, through broadcast TV as well. But
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's part of it. The other part, too, is that the streams are targeted regionally as well so what you're seeing sort of a regional targeted stream it's not the aggregate stream okay um so yeah so i mean the numbers in terms of performance this year significantly up from 2017 significantly up from 2016 so yeah we're feeling really good on what our projections were we're actually ahead of our projections for the season so far um and that's with having canceled or not canceled but having had to uh you know stop competition early for the margaret river pro and then we'll we'll see an added benefit when we finish out Uluwatu.
0: We had, obviously there was a lot of internet discussion about the Margaret River Pro. Mm -hmm. Um, Were you there on site?
1: No, I wasn't. I felt like I was, but I was here.
0: Yeah, why did you feel like you were?
1: Um, I mean, I think it was just a lot of long hours um, talking to a lot of different stakeholders and taking in a lot of feedback and ultimately trying to come up with the best decision, um, which I think in the end was the easiest decision for us too, is that at the end of the day, Surfer and staff safety is a priority, and there were really unique circumstances around the event this year, and and we made the decision to to stop competition.
0: Um, Do you, if the swell forecast was like all time, would that have affected the decision at all? Would the decision have been different? It's a good
1: question. I mean, I was involved in probably 99% of the conversations um, about the decision, and the forecast never came up once. It could have colored some of the surfer feedback we received, um, but it was never it was never brought up you know explicitly.
0: Okay. What's the WSL's involvement in the Olympics?
1: Yeah, I mean the, the WSL is working pretty closely with the ISA um, in terms of developing the, I mean really it's a huge opportunity to kind of showcase any sport. So the idea is that we want it, to make the most of the opportunity in terms of having the best surfers, having the best format, having the best conditions, and um, supporting that as much as we can. So, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the IOC, uh, the International Olympic Committee, and the JOC, the Japanese Olympic Committee, are working with the ISA, and then the ISA is working with the WSL on on what that looks like.
0: And um, what are the odds of a wave pool being utilized for the competition? Oh,
1: well, I mean, we'd have to build one first. Um, So, you know, we have a bunch of markets that we're looking to develop these systems in, uh, Japan being one of them. But yeah, I mean, I think that whether or not one happens in a wave system is still a huge opportunity. I think that having one in a wave system allows for, you know, a minimum quality of conditions for surfers to perform in and not having one there you're risking potentially showcasing surfing on that platform in, in less than ideal conditions.
0: That is a concern what do you think has more kind of um, relevance to the real world viewing surfing do you think?
1: Well I mean I, and it's a little bit of both right because I think the the programmability component makes the real world um, viewing experience enhanced in a lot of ways because they're able to know when it's on and who to watch and when to watch them otherwise they're looking at having to utilize a waiting period like we do now
0: i suppose um there's just real logistic limitations i mean how much time would it take to build out a wave pool? can we even do it in the 18 months that we have between now and the olympics oh it can definitely be done it can yeah
1: but i mean i think it it relies on a lot of factors yeah of course yeah
0: um can you discuss any potential changes to the 2019 tour? I know we're a ways out still, but there's gotta be, I would imagine, adjustments. Um, I mean,
1: not yet necessarily. I know there's been a lot reported and speculated on. There's certainly been a lot of conversations, um, but nothing confirmed yet. I mean, we have a really, I think right now a really strong schedule of events. Um, in 2018, and, you know, being able to replicate that in some fashion in 2019 is advantageous. When 2020 comes around, you've got the Olympics, so that throws a spanner and a lot of scheduling works for a lot of surfers, but, yeah, I mean, we're constantly having conversations on how best to evolve the sport, so.
0: Will we see Margaret River?
1: At this point, we we intend to have Margaret River on the calendar for
0: 2019. Okay. Um. We... Meaning Scott Bass and I mainly have talked a lot about restructuring the tour, um, creating kind of an ideal scenario for what we would want to see as viewers, fewer surfers, which would allow shorter swell win- to be able to run an event on a shorter swell window, all that sort of thing. What are the WSLs? What's your thoughts on that? I mean, obviously you're you're kind of you've picked a lane, and you can't diverge too quickly nor too fast. You can't just chop the tour in half. But what are your thoughts? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think that, and, and you, you two aren't the only ones that talk a lot about it, it's something that's talked about kind of daily um, at the World Surf League, you know, and I think at the end of the day, you know, our product is the world's best surfing. Um, so we're trying to create conditions that continue to enhance that and progress that. With regards to the field numbers, you know, fortunately you have the commissioner's office and they're experts in this arena. So. They've determined that the numbers on tour right now are ideal for determining the world's best surfers. On the men's side or the women's side, if you were to add surfers to that field, potentially you're watering down the performances at the championship tour level. If you remove surfers, you're potentially taking away world class performances. So for now, the numbers are, they're happy with the numbers, um, but it doesn't mean it won't change in the future. It changed only a few years ago on the men's side from 48 man events to 36 man events. And I think that change, although although at the time was met with a lot of criticism, ultimately bore out for the best.
0: Yeah, and I think the general complaint on the internet, nobody's ever suggesting adding surfers to the tour. They're basically saying that the number of surfers right now has somewhat watered down the performance levels, and that the, you know, bottom ten on tour at any given time are aren't the same caliber as the top ten. On tour at any given time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think
0: uh,
1: like it's fair for everyone to have their opinions too. But I think that one thing I've noticed over over many many years is that people who you'd expect to be in the top ten occasionally find themselves in the bottom ten, and vice versa. Right. So having that thirty six as opposed to twenty four or as opposed to eighteen allows for that movement because some people kind of come out of nowhere and do really really well on the at the elite tier. And some people who you expect to do really, really well, take a few years to kind of find their feet. So I think from the commissioner's standpoint, having the number where it is now allows for that movement without compromising anyone's opportunity to stay on tour and develop into who they ultimately want to develop
0: into. Yeah, that is the other thing. It seems like there's some, I don't know, maybe the disconnect is between the QS and the CT where we were talking at the beginning about it just takes people time on the ct to really get comfortable and do well on that level and um, the feeder system is the qs and if there's that big of a disparity between the two i'm not sure how you would bridge that gap
1: yeah for sure i think that like one of the things if you if you're cutting numbers is also developing a stable career option at the qs level which is part of what the world fleet wants to do moving forward, and to creating another product lane that's interesting in its own right. So the people that are you might be dropping from the CT numbers are landing in a space where they still get to perform and serve as fans. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's part of the progression of the sport too. But I think the point about being able to operate a format in a smaller amount of time is something that we've looked at a lot because... You're looking at swell cycles that are two to three days um, where you're getting maybe great waves. Um, and at the moment, it takes longer to run a combined event right. in two to three days. So, um, I mean, that has all sorts of advantages just in terms of surfers getting to surf better waves, um, fans having the momentum of seeing competition run back to back as opposed to spread out over the course of a week or two. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's something that to consider, too. Cutting the numbers is one option. Changing the format's another option. Um, yeah, I, I mean, as I've said before, everything gets reviewed every day.
0: Right. Any thoughts on, um, the idea of adding a big wave spot to the CT tour?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that gets considered, um, almost annually. And that goes back to the balance point about ensuring that the surfers at the top of the rankings at the end of the year, are the comprehensive best surfers on the planet, the challenge historically with big wave spots is that they're very hard to plan out over the course of a two-week window every year. You could plan on having a big wave spot, um, say Mavericks or something, added to the tour over the course of two weeks. And over the course of those two weeks, you're not getting a swell over eight feet, and the world's best surfers competing out of eight-foot Mavericks isn't really worth it. You know, so it's kind of a binary thing. Um, I think if you did it, you'd have to have probably a strike mission kind of option where you had you know, a three month window and a venue that you were guaranteed to get three or four days of big waves or one day of big waves at least and that you would send the surfers there but that creates all sorts of logistical challenges to get done.
0: It seems like if you were willing to unpack those logistical challenges that would be um, a better option and it would also open up a lot of options for the rest of the events throughout the year. You know, just making it less structured. I understand the need for structure in terms of running the business, but it's like limiting yourself to two weeks in a given space certainly prohibits being able to show up at Fiji last week when that did that. And I know Fiji's not on tour this year, but still, you know, to be able to pursue that type of a model of a roving tour um, seems like it would have real value. seems like the technology exists. It's not impossible logistically, and there's tremendous value to it.
1: It's not impossible. I do think that operationally it becomes challenging in terms of the programmability component if you're working with linear broadcasters that might not know ahead of time They might only get 48 or 72 hours advance notice that you guys are heading to Fiji or you know uh, Micronesia or wherever you're going to head. Um, and then also getting surfers and staff from around the world to travel there on short notice. I'll, I mean, admittedly doing it on the big wave tour is a challenge in its own right having to replicate that um you know a dozen times a year is is a challenge but I do get the idea of saying like wow wow like uh you're gonna have a permit to run at cloud break for six months two weeks over six months but it starts impacting all other sorts of things too you know you may have you you may have someone who saved up for 10 years to travel to Tavarua And they just happen to land on the swell that the world's best surfers picked, and they go, "Well, that's cool. I get to watch." But I came here to surf, so yeah, I think from you know permitting, operationally, culturally, there's all sorts of challenges. As far as big wave spots, I'd be curious to get your opinion on what maybe three or four venues would would be options to be added on tour that would have that additive challenge for the world's best surfers.
0: Waimea, yeah, for sure. Mavericks, for sure. Um. those would probably be my top picks mm-hmm. in terms of like contestable opportunities for people you know for the entire field to kind of have a go at it be interesting other big wave spots would be interesting for novelty's sake but i don't know that they would be as competitive i think why might be the right the right call
1: yeah and i mean even then it, you start talking about having to alter the numbers and alter the format to really run it in one day, right? Because even running those big wave events or running the eddy, it's rare that you even get a whole day of great waves, right. you know, and even even conditions that sort of agree with you in the sense that it's going to be big enough to run in the morning and it's going to build throughout the day for the final. Like often you'll find oh, okay, we have biggest conditions in the morning and by the final it's a little bit underwhelming or something like that. So yeah, I mean, again, it just presents an interesting logistical equation to figure out.
0: Fewer surfers on tour solve the problem, dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, when are we going to see a Rippable Left on tour?
1: Mm. As a goofy footer, not soon enough. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I think that, you know, it boils down to opportunity. I think part of that factored into... Determining Uluwatu as um, a finishing venue for the Margaret River Pro. I mean, you know, one could argue that uh, Main Break is a left or has historically been a left, but the higher scores over the last few years, um, with this new era of surfing, have been on the rights. But yeah, I mean, I think that was part of it. It's like, you know, if you're going to finish this event, it's great because you're giving people opportunity. But you know, what we love about Margaret River is also what challenged us this year: is its rawness, is its power. Um, So in determining where to finish that event, conversation, consultation with the surfers and the commissioner's office, Uluwatu became a really good venue. And I mean, I know they've had plenty of waves there this past week. It'll be great if we can continue that for when we finish that event. Um, and I'm sure there'll be cries for it to be added in perpetuity of the schedule. But like there's other ripable lefts too. I mean, Pasta Point, um, Fiji coming back on tour. I mean, you know, they're around. I think it's, in terms of determining a schedule that works for partnerships, that works for, you know, um, financial stability, you know, those are the factors that go
0: into it. You said Fiji back on tour. Is that a real potential?
1: Oh, for sure. And I think we said that when we pulled it off the schedule is that we love Fiji, we want to come back. But for this year's schedule, we couldn't make it work financially.
0: Right. Yeah. So, 2019. <laughs>
1: Well, we'll do our best to break it on the pod when that happens.
0: Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, (coughs) Fan suggestions for ways to improve the WSL. Are you ready for it? I would love this. Um, You are welcome to chime in on each of these or none of these, but straight from the internet. Okay. Younger people in the commentary team. Hmm.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think over the last couple of years, we've broken out of probably what that core team was and now we're starting to see different folks come into um, younger people in the commentary team I'm trying to think who the youngest is it's probably it must be Rosie who's a few years younger than Joe and Joe's my age and I'm 35 so yeah I mean I think getting new blood in there is great I mean fortunately for us we have in addition to the surfers having a feeder system there's a feeder system for all levels of involvement with the World Surf League, whether you want to be a judge or whether you want to be a photographer or whether you want to be a commentator. So having young folks turn up and work on their skills at the pro junior level and then the QS level is a great sort of, I guess, sort of development ground for us to look for talent.
0: Yeah, so what would the path be for somebody who wanted to, somebody who's listening who wants to be involved in that world? For sure.
1: I think that the, the best way would be to get in touch with the local WSL office in your region um, and, and inquire about how you can get some reps um, doing commentary for, for events. I mean, I think they're always looking for good people. A lot of commentators, in my experience, start out doing beach commentary. Um, even sort of shadowing beach commentators and, and maybe breaking them occasionally um, is a really good way to get your foot in the door. Okay. And yeah. then and then work your way up from
0: there. People want to know more tech minutia about surfboards. I think the most that we ever really see about it is um, Pete Mel has a real affinity for board building. And so he'll chime in on what people are writing, but there's never any... Um, Graphics or anything like that. There's no kind of pre-production um, packaging about what's what, and I I can speak just from personal experience doing the podcast, interviewing surfboard shapers. I'll veer away from the tech stuff and publish an episode, and then I get a bunch of feedback going. Hey, why didn't you let the shaper go down that rabbit hole? Like we want to know more about glassing schedule or whatever it happens to be you know
1: it's really inside baseball like I think for like the real fanatics it's it's something that I like seeing too um, for the, sort of the uninitiated fan or the casual fan it might be difficult to you know keep focus when when they start going down those rabbit holes but I think any kind of education is good for everyone involved I think like a funny anecdote there is that the surfers and the shapers in the past have been a little bit cagey about the secret sauce of what they're, you know, they'll intentionally leave dimensions off of surfers boards and things like that. So some of them are really great to work with. Some of them are still great to work with, but a little bit, um, proprietary about what makes their board so special, but yeah, I think it's great. I think that surfing is what makes it so special as a sport is in terms of uniqueness is having that class of human that are these craftsmen and artisans and really, really great people. Um, and so many of them come to the events and they're there. And the more that we can get them online, on the webcast, talking about it again mm-hmm. and breaking it down, I think is better for everyone.
0: I do too. There's so much time to fill throughout yeah. the course of the day. You know what I mean? That um, seems like an obvious one. to. There's just a lot of nuance to pick apart. It would give a lot of potential for content
1: totally and and they all i mean i might be reading into it but they all seem like they have a pretty friendly fraternity with one another like i don't feel yeah. like there's that many rivalries maybe maybe some funny ones between like dh and js over the years but just in general like i think they're very respectful of one another and what they're accomplishing at that very high level so yeah, yeah. i think it, it's it's great having them at events and i think getting more of them on the broadcast breaking down. Shapes and approaches, and interesting. The interesting thing for me is getting the same shaper talking about shaping for you know three or four different surfers and how that approach differs depending on the surfer. Like, I always enjoy hearing that because then I try to pick apart, like, right, well, I'm about that guy's size or that girl's size, and you know, I don't surf like any of them, but if I could, it would be like her or him or mm-hmm. something like that. And I'll try to sure. pull insights into the next board order from that.
0: Somebody was asking for a true cold water event on tour.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I cut my teeth on the event ASP North American schedule, and that was when the O'Neill Cold Water Classic at Steamer Lane was a, a major event. I think it was a four-star and then became a six-star, and I loved it. I thought it was so cool, and, and then I think they ended up doing the O'Neill Coldwater Classic Series where that was their their shtick you know like I think a lot of the brands were pushing towards board short sales and tropical venues and O'Neill's like look we make wetsuits, our venues are Tasmania, Scotland you know Cape Town, Santa Cruz, and I just thought it was such a cool point of difference and yeah I think that um, provided the waves are really high quality which they are in a lot of these locations it's awesome to see people surf it, with wetsuits on
0: again trying to find the most (coughs) well-rounded surfer in the world that is an added element of variable Totally wearing a lot of rubber and being in unfamiliar environment totally i interviewed a filmmaker named ben gulliver who made a film this year this past year called the sea wolf i saw it did you like it yeah yeah i thought it was awesome too and um beautiful beautiful. it was totally beautiful cinematic yeah so he was saying that his passion is cold water and he's from canada he loves cold and so that isn't a stop point for him in terms of surf exploration. And it seems to be a stop point for a lot of other people. Most people just think tropical. And what he's found is it's kind of studying or um, exploring the North Atlantic is like Indonesia back in the 70s, where he's like, it's unmapped. Nobody's around. We find perfect reeling waves like of every size we find slabs we find perfect six foot reef breaks and nobody's around and um it's the wild west for anybody who's willing to put on a wetsuit you know so i think for the wsl there'd be challenges in terms of infrastructure you know like hotels for people to stay at all that sort of stuff but the waves are there totally
1: i'd love to see something like that come on tour
0: be interesting um what about the idea of specialty events like a one-off event at the Wedge or something like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we've had a variety of specialty events coming over the years from, I guess I misquoted before, or misstated before, because Boosted and Airshow Series. The oh, that's right. mid oddies
0: I forgot about that.
1: Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's great. I think that probably what we're seeing now is that the built-out Um, sort of divisional spaces in terms of events, whether they're pro junior events or big wave events or longboard events or championship tour events, are becoming more robust. And you're able to find, like, well, if I wanted to do a wedge event, the wedge is a unique situation, I guess, but say you had a venue, you could probably fit it in any one of the divisional categories at the moment. Um, But, yeah, I mean, having those one-off events, it kind of boils down to is a sponsor interested? Is the WSL interested in pursuing it as a, uh, as a one-off for developing that kind of a product? But yeah, I don't think anyone's opposed to it, but it just boils down to the opportunity.
0: Sure. I wanted to uh, open it up to a couple of non-WSL questions from listeners. Mm-hmm. I think you probably saw these on Instagram. What's your favorite Netflix show. I
1: saw that one and I, of all the questions that came through, I think I panicked because I was like, I don't feel like I've watched anything on Netflix and Stranger Things. Oh, really? Well, I mean, I have, but not like...
0: That's your answer then.
1: Not really, regularly. How Um, much time do you get for
0: TV watching? Not
1: much, but, um, jeez. I spend so much time commuting that it's more just podcasts for me. What
0: are you listening to right now? Um, I'm like, my
1: favorite one, and I probably said this last time, The Dollop. Um, it's like, I don't remember you saying that, actually. It, it's an American history podcast told by two comedians, both improvisers, and one of them, Dave Anthony, reads a story that he's researched from American history, or whatever history, depending oh, on where he's from. Yeah. And his partner, Gareth Reynolds, has no idea what the topic's going to be about. Um, so I find them informative and, and really funny.
0: I do remember you... premise i don't remember the name
1: yeah yeah i'll definitely check check it out if you haven't i will check that uh, out some of the it's some of the hardest i've laughed ever
0: i was just telling scott yesterday that i discovered 30 for 30s uh new season with all focused on bikram no way bikram chowdhury the guy who founded bikram yoga yeah yeah it's fascinating wow it's a five-parter they're like 45 minutes to an hour each yeah um fascinating yeah trying to
1: think if i listen to anything I like some true crime stuff it's i'm just... all about it dude <laughs> yeah.
0: have you listened to atlanta monsters yet
1: yeah yeah it's, i mean it's more like a it's more like illustrative of like how much time i spend in the car or doing yard work or something i like
0: yeah. oh yeah i've done that one the problem yeah yeah
1: uh, but yeah i didn't give a good answer to the netflix one but doesn't ne- matter. next time i'll have something it, it
0: doesn't matter um all right how do you like your eggs
1: uh, scrambled a little bit oh, pep- a really? little bit of pepper a little bit of tapatillo there's like um, I, I'm pretty boring I I mean wherever you go I generally get that um, and uh, I live in Ventura County so we've got a lot of really great Mexican food but I'll generally order the same thing pretty boring and someone brought this up to me the other week because I'd eaten I guess I'd eaten with them enough to the point where they're like you order the same thing wherever you go which is basically like scrambled eggs rice and beans and he said there's this movie, um, it probably hasn't aged well, but like Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Oh,
0: yeah. It's fantastic. And, and
1: Johnny Depp's character in it is like a CIA operative, and yeah. apparently he orders the same thing wherever he goes in Mexico. And if it's too good, he kind of calibrates <laughs> the the chef by, by saying we can't have the quality of food here too high, so it's a little bit of like culinary Darwinism, but... Um, I thought that was pretty funny. But yeah, so the answer to my eggs is scrambled, a little bit of pepper, a little bit of top of
0: I wasn't even going to address that question when it came through on Instagram, but because you texted me about it yesterday, I was like, all right, yeah.
1: it's getting added to the list. This is at the opposite end of the Netflix question. I'm like, I know this one. I can answer that really. really quickly.
0: All right. More importantly, would you ever surf an egg? The great egg debate, Devin Howard was on the podcast and he, Loves the egg design. Yeah. And then uh, there was a lot of, you know, um, response to that. People argued against the egg design, but he's a huge advocate. I'd be
1: interested in learning some of the arguments against it. I mean, to answer your question, for sure.
0: Oh, the arguments against it is that they're nerdy. It's a kooky thing to
1: do. I'm at this point where I'm fortunate that I have, like, a a selection of boards, and I just don't surf enough. I think we talked about this last time. So... Yeah. I mean, I'm all for writing whatever's in front of me. Um, and I think that hopefully it's not like a sign of age, but like I have so much more respect for different shapes now that I'm older because I'm a little more curious as to, I don't want to say I'm done progressing on like a high performance thruster, but I've probably reached a point where my, my baseline for self-assessment is firmly established. So deviating from that board whether it's a fish or a single fin or an egg or a long board, whatever for me is like oh cool like i kind of know what that shape does and how it differs from my baseline um and then i go back on the short board and i feel like i've learned new things so i, I love oh, it yeah. like
0: well devin's pitch uh for the egg is like write it in head high good surf and you won't any shortcomings or like um, mistakes that you would have made on your high performance shortboard where there's very little room for error, the egg compensates for, and you can just kind of like stumble to your feet, draw out a big bottom turn. It'll help you draw big carves, you know, um, so you'll end up surfing to your highest ability level and it masks a lot of the uh, inadequacies. And of course, that's the way that I would want it to perform for me. Devin actually doesn't need any of those <laughs> inadequacies say, he's covered a, up.
1: He's a beautiful surfer. Man. Yeah, it's and, amazing.
0: And he will actually—he would totally probably disagree with what I just said about it, and he would state it very differently. But that's what I got out of the conversation.
1: Is he doing stuff for the the Relic Longboard Tour now a little bit? Or
0: I think he might have linked up with them. Okay. Last time I talked to him, he had not. Yeah. But I think I saw something on Instagram or yeah. something that he was helping him out with something.
1: What, what are your thoughts on the longboard debate of, I mean, I, it's a debate, but I'm mostly a tourist in this space, but the idea between something like Joel Tudor's duct tape invitational, single fins, traditional longboarding versus maybe sort of a more high perform not high performance is the right word, but a different approach to longboarding that's more sort of maneuver based.
0: What are my thoughts yeah, on just it just, as,
1: a, as a fan or, or a surfer? If as a that.
0: competitive thing or just as a viewer? Either or. I'm not into the competitive thing too much, mm-hmm. and I'm kind of anti high performance longboard, period. Right. Like, I don't know where that serves a purpose in our world because um, there's just better boards to ride once you start trying to hit the lip, you know? Sure. Um, but I think that there's real relevance for the duck. Tape Invitational, both as a comp, a contest and a style of surfing. Mm-hmm. You know the waves just call for it a lot of the times, and nose riding is unbelievably fun. And I don't have a lot of experience for it, but I started exploring it a couple of years ago, and it's like I've had a blast. Once you get locked in and you feel that feeling, it's so much fun. And I think that from a competitive standpoint, the duct tape does a fantastic job of just making it a festival and it's loose and it's kind of part of it is hanging out on the beach. Part of it is being in the water. And that looser structure, I think is, um, I don't know, representative of a lot of our surfing experience, you know? Totally. And, but there also seems to be that a great surfer always wins the event. Maybe not the best surfer of the day, but, uh, an inadequate surfer doesn't win. So there's still value kind of for the structure of the contest. And, um, i think joel's done a great job with it too like not trying to make it super mainstream not trying to have it at all these different venues across the world it's just like it's three times a year it's a fun thing everybody goes away happy i think it serves a purpose yeah i
1: I agree i think they do a great job with it i I love the idea of the the self-shaped aspect as well I think it's like a real important part of you know, surfing culture and heritage and, and, and that part of it, and that kind of surfing. I think it's awesome.
0: Totally. Vistla doing their cosmic Creek challenge this weekend. Yep. And I think that's interesting because yeah, the shapers, not only shaping boards on site, well, they shaped them for the event, I think, but they're also doing shaping demos on site, but the shapers are competing as surfers as well yeah Which I think great.
1: that's it's like an awesome part of the sport like totally. I, I brought up I think I was talking to someone about this It doesn't serve um, uh, just looking at like the bass coverage of the duct tape and I talked about the self shaping aspect and they were like they couldn't wrap their heads around it they're like well, what like if it's a competition how do you know that they're not cheating and they're just getting someone else to shape and I'm like well that it's probably the difference between surfers and non-surfers or at <laughs> least in this respect like eat you would never do that because that's kind of the whole point—is yeah. to kind of shape your own board. Yeah. Like, so I, I think it's really cool.
0: Yeah, I think so too. All right, will you participate in this special round of Barrel or Nah? Barrel or Nah is um, a game that Chaz and I play on the <laughs> Grit that is taking the internet by storm. I'm going to give you four topics, yeah. and you have to decide whether it is Barrel, meaning whether it's awesome, okay, or not. Are you in? I'm in. Special edition. Dave Prodan. or not. <laughs> Paddling around your competitor to psych him out in a heat.
1: Um, in my limited experience, viewing experience this year, um, uh, this is Barrel.
0: This is Barrel. Yeah. Defend your point, Dave.
1: Oh, oh, I don't know how to defend you it. You do? Um, yes, that's yeah, part of it. some new rules. <laughs> the, um... Yeah, I mean, I think that in that scenario, at least what I saw, it, it, I mean, it's it's part of competition. So, and it, and I'm a huge John John fan too, and probably personally, hue more towards. I love watching people surfed for the win as opposed to quote unquote compete for the win. But yeah, I think that's part of who Zeke is. I think it's part of who. Um, the Jake Patterson camp a competition I think it's use all, all the tools you can to get a victory and I actually thought it was really cool and I think the nice thing about Zeke is that he totally backs it up by surfing really really well so yeah I mean I think and it goes back to the point of some people are real low on the totem pole rankings wise and you can't really afford to not win heats especially early in the year so yeah I, I back it is very barrel for me to see Zeke do that to John um at that point in the year. I like it. And G- and sidebar, like the turn did two days ago out of Karama's mind blowing to me. So sick. Like it is like this it's just for me it's like a radical combination of talent, physicality, and board building, and like you result in something like that. So like it, that's great, you know. And good ways.
0: It was so gnarly. Um do you think John John will Come back, you know, a stronger competitor based on that.
1: Um, I think he hears I try to remember. I think he responded pretty quickly after that. It was a little bit flabbergasted that it happened. Um, and I sent Ross Williams an inappropriate name of Denzel Washington from Training Day, but I won't repeat it on the podcast. I've seen it. But the <laughs> I, the idea that like two world titles and then this guy comes up and it's just in your face. It's it's awesome anyway um that's neither here nor there i think that john i think that john took that on board in the sense that no one's going to give him an inch whether they know him or not probably especially the people that know him because they understand that this is competition and john probably is someone that naturally um steers a little bit more towards surfing his way out of heats as opposed to competing and i think for him it was more of a A calcification or crystallization of the fact that, like, look, I'm I'm here to win. Yeah, he's here to win. Let's not let's not mistake that.
0: I agree. I do think John comes back a stronger competitor for Mm -hmm. sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, interesting too. I mean, I remember Ross posted something, sort of an articulated defense of John's ear in Brazil, on Instagram. Did you see that? No. Yeah, I mean, and I kind of got it. Like, I think you know he was saying that. John's not having a slow... He's not having a down year. He's just... The level of performance of the CT is very, very high. He's had a couple of interesting heats, but he's still performing. He's still surfing at a very, very high level, and he's still hungrier than ever. Um, And then, unfortunately, he lost the next heat uh, for them. But, you know, I I just think it's one of those things where he's going to come back at some point and blow people away, because he's still surfing very well. Totally. Uh, But sometimes you just have those years where people are surfing a little bit better than you in heats, or things just aren't going your way.
0: Right. Okay, barrel or non number two, armchair quarterback podcasters who are full of criticisms for the WSL.
1: Uh, That is totally barrel. I'm all for uh, opinions and not present company included, but not because you're here. Um, I would also add anonymous Twitter handles having opinions for everything. Totally barrel. I mean, I think know everyone wants surfing to be the best it can be and I think the WSL especially wants that and I think that getting input from all directions internal and external is what kind of keeps us progressing so I'm totally for
0: it good I'm glad to hear you say that Um, (coughs) you need a thick skin to be in the position that you guys are in I think it's also important something that you've articulated a number of times today is just look you guys have a product and an objective and so much of what other people vo- vocalizes criticisms simply aren't what you're doing you know mm. it's like even my suggestion for a novelty wave specialty event it's like yeah that's great except we're working within this framework over here and that lands somewhere kind of outside of the framework if we can adjust and incorporate it at some point we'd be open to that but right now it's just not what we're doing you know
1: totally and I think that like surfing occupies this really unique nexus between lifestyle and sport and I think the WSL where it's heading has to be cognizant of that and not just represent a competitive sport but a culture and for a lot of people like an identity Um, and so I think people get really passionate about that um, but at the same time, you know, I, you know, the WSL is a business, and like we can't really apologize for that. No. Because if we're successful, it means we get to reinvest in this thing that we love and we get to keep it going. So, yeah, I think that the evolution the company's gone through, specifically since the acquisition, but over the course of the 12 years I've been here, is really highlighted that.
0: Yeah. Well, good. <coughs> I'm glad because um, we do level a lot of criticism, and it's all from a place of love. Even what mm. I give Kelly a hard time and it's like, dude, because I love him so much, just want to love, love comes in many forms. It does. Um, barrel or not nah, leaving your heat early, <laughs> a la Chloe and Dino at Karamas this week.
1: Um, I, I'm split on this. I'll say not barrel primarily because um, for someone that has had a hard winter of, not many waves leaving Karamas at four foot or six foot or however you want to quantify it with one other guy out with another couple of minutes seems like a bummer to me, but um, I won't have it both ways. I'll stick with non barrel, but the argument for barrel is like, I love the (laughs) motion when these guys get upset because it means they care and they give a shit. So uh, yeah, I mean, and I, I, you can call me on it. I can't remember who my, my picks were for doing really well this year, but I'm pretty sure I talked up Kolohe And I still back it. I think that physically he's the strongest he's ever been. He obviously has all the talent, but yeah, he's having a a rough year so far.
0: I thought he kind of got um, a little bit underscored in that heat. Mm -hmm. Like I do think Mikey surfed better, but marginally. Like Koloe's, when you look at the final score tallies, there's a pretty big difference Mm -hmm. between the two. And I think Chloe um, was expressing his frustration at that, maybe.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, like, score tallies—if you're just looking at score tallies, regardless of who's in it—don't always tell the whole story, right? Because if you feel like you're getting underscored at the start of the heat, that impacts the pacing and your approach the rest of the heat. And what could have been 14 to 12 ends up being 14 to seven or something, you know, just because it started out that way. So
0: yeah. Okay. Leaving your heat early, not barrel. Uh, final barrel or not, nah, the wave pool in Waco, Texas.
1: <laughs> uh, totally barrel. Is I it? Think, I think it's awesome. You know, and I think it's it's obviously a different kind of system. It's a different technology. It's a different facility. There's different applications, but yeah, I mean, I think it's really cool. Like, and just looking at the output of guys getting a lot of reps. Um, at air sections or people getting a lot of reps at turn sections and noticing a marked improvement over the course of a very short window is really cool. I think that's kind of the purpose behind all these systems is being able to replicate conditions for improvement. And and that seems awesome.
0: Yeah. Um, How'd you feel about them dropping their kind of, uh, their introduction into the wide world of the internet on the day of the Founders' Cup? Uh, I
1: think it's all fair. I yeah. Mean,
0: you know. They said it wasn't intentional.
1: I, yeah, I don't believe that, but I haven't spoken to them. So. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think if I were in their shoes, I would have done the same thing. And if it wasn't intentional, I'd be telling people I meant to do it. <laughs> it seemed like a good idea. Totally. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's awesome. Funny enough, I, I watched a really long, um, what was it, Brett Barley edit on Surfline, it's like thirty minutes, and he really went into being there for a few days and looking at what it was like to have a private session versus a public session. Um, the machine broke down unfortunately, so he didn't get a second private session. But um, yeah, it was a really cool comparison and, and kind of seeing how it interacted. And he was giving people tips for like if you ever go, here's what you need to do. You know, it's epoxy boards and keep some tropical wax in your pocket and. Hmm and watch the wave first because he was saying it was really difficult because he just got excited and went out and surfed he's like you should watch it and kind of see what it does before you get used to it but interesting i think it's i think it's cool definitely barrel
0: you gonna surf it
1: uh i mean if i have the time like <laughs> yeah I, I think i mean any any I, i'd take any opportunity to surf these days
0: have you gotten a full proper session at surf ranch yet uh no just poaching waves
1: yeah I mean I, I think probably people here think I've surfed it way more than I have but um having like a non-agenda this is Dave's time session no not really all right man but I'll say to. that is nobody no nobody really does so right yeah but um no I mean any even poached waves there are pretty damn
0: good so right awesome dude well let's watch the uh Corona Bali Protected for sure thanks man thanks for having me on thank you Fun afternoon. Thank you very much, Dave Prodan, for taking time out of your busy schedule to make this happen. And then also for listeners who um, were curious, last week I mentioned that I was going to publish an interview with Dr. Aaron James about his book Surfing for Sartre. I mentioned that I would release it this week. I'm going to push it back. I wanted to get uh, this Dave Prodan interview out just in timely fashion because of the things that we were talking about on the show Surfing with Sartre is a little more evergreen it will still be relevant when I do publish that so in the next couple of weeks definitely that will be out but if you have not secured the book or actually if you have and didn't get a chance to read it within that last week this will give you more time to get your homework done and then if you haven't definitely take the time I think it might be available as an audiobook as well. So that's an option. But at any rate, uh, we'll be talking about that. And if you want the primer, you now have the time. All right. Dave Prodan, thanks again. Everything we discussed is available on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Go ahead and leave a comment for him there. I'll be glad to share that with him. And then, of course, share this show with friends. I haven't said that in a while, but that is the way this show grows. I don't advertise anywhere. I solely rely on guerrilla marketing, word-of-mouth marketing, fans of the show sharing it with people they think would like it. So who do you know in your friend group who cares about hearing the behind the scenes of the WSL? Well, send this episode to them. And that'll be your reciprocity for uh, us pumping out all this content week after week. All right. Thank you for that in advance. Scott Bass did an interview with uh, surfboard shaper Dennis Jarvis of Spider Surfboards talking about kind of a movement to rally American board builders together into a union of sorts. So that episode will be episode number two on his brand new podcast, The Boardroom. So you can open up your podcast app, search The Boardroom and find it there. Click subscribe to hear that. That'll be released actually in the next two days. And then as I stated at the opening of the show... I'll be announcing a brand new podcast project next week on this show. So look forward to that. I'm really excited and I'll be introducing some new voices in that. You won't have to listen to me uh, on yet a fourth installment of podcasts. This will be a brand new program without my voice even on it. So look forward to that. Enjoy the rest of the Coroni Bali Protected. And um, I will be back with my recap of that once that event wraps up in the next few days. So I'll talk to you then. Until then, get back into the ocean, share some waves with friends and shred on.